ಇಷ್ಟಾಷ್ಟೋಪತ್ತಿಷು ಮಯಿ ಚಾನನ್ಯೋಗೇನ ಭಕ್ತಿರವ್ಯಭಿಚಾರಿಣೇಕ್ತೇಶಸೇವಿತ್ವರ್ಜನ ಸಂಸದಿ ಅಧ್ಯಾತ್ಮಜ್ಞಾನಿತ್ಯಾನಾರ್ಥದರ್ಶನ ಪ್ರೋಕ್ತಜ್ಞಾನೋನ್ಯ 
we're talking about kshama, the value of forgiveness, accommodation, large-heartedness, or a glad acceptance <coughs> of the things that I cannot change. I cannot change other people, people with whom I am related to, and I get the people as they are, just as when I, I have rose, then the thorns also come along with that, I have no choice. And similarly also, with every person there are many virtues, at the same time there are also going to be some limitations or some defects, some many desirable things will be there, there are also going to be things that are not very favorable to me. And therefore, kshama, accommodation means accepting the person as the person is, and not making a demand that the person should change in order to become acceptable to me. There is usually a demand that others around me should change in order that they become acceptable to me so that I am comfortable. So usually demand is that other people should change to make me comfortable. That's the usual demand. Kshama or this forgiveness requires that I may try to bring about a change in myself to become comfortable with other people as they are. This is not easy at all, not easy, but this is the value. <coughs> in fact, the value is that even when one is offended and one is abused and offended, then also one does not retaliate. Not only one does not retaliate, but even the idea of retaliation does not arise in the mind. So the idea of retaliation arises and I do not retaliate, that is a discipline, which is, a, which is also a value. As I said yesterday, to keep my impulses of anger, etc. under check is a great value. But kshama or forgiveness goes even a step further, that even the idea of retaliation, the anger itself does not arise in me even when I am offended. Now this is a big thing. The only example we can give is that of a mother who doesn't get offended regardless of how the little child treats or how they behaves, knowing fully well that it is a child and therefore the kshama, the forgiveness is natural. This, as we said, the question of kshama or the forgiveness or accommodation is most required with reference to people who are most closely associated with us. More closely associated a person is, more chances of his hurting me are there because our expectations are always greater, more closely we are associated. As Swami says that I do in fact show kshama or forgiveness to many things in the world and many creatures in the world. When mosquitoes bite me, I know that that's the nature of mosquito. I may get annoyed a little bit, but then I do not get upset. I don't get angry at mosquito. Other people do get angry at mosquitoes also. <laughs> the other day I was taking a walk on the back road and then this person was extremely upset that these bugs, you know. Because there are so many bugs, you know, and then I could see these bugs. You can get upset if you want to, but usually we don't because we know that that's how, what do we expect from a mosquito anyway? Mosquito will bite, you want to remove it, hopefully you will not kill it and you want to remove it, but then you accept that mosquito is a mosquito. And a fly is a fly, a scorpion is a scorpion, and that's what they are. So when you expect, accept them as they are, then we are able, we know how to deal with them, how to relate to them. You can keep a distance from them or you can deal with them as is appropriate. But, and also they say that, in fact, we give benefit of doubt or we give, we show accommodation to even a, a great fool, a mad person. 
while walking on the street sometimes there are some mad people you know and they shout at you and say things to you and you know he's a mad fellow doesn't know what he's talking you're able to shake it off but if your son says that to you if your spouse spouse says that to you impossible i cannot tolerate that how come i can tolerate something that a fellow not related to me i can tolerate that he is he is absolutely fool or you are mad person and not related to me he can say anything that he likes and then nothing happens to me i can shake it off but when my son is so dear to me or the spouse is so dear to me when they say i cannot tolerate that why is it so because i do not give them the same benefits as i give to a crazy person i do not give benefit to the people around me the benefit that i give to mosquitoes and to scorpions and things of the world because i know this is what they are so we know we are familiar with what we call kshama or accommodation or an acceptance in our life we have accepted many things in our life and that is why we are fairly comfortable with those things the thought of mosquito doesn't bother me that much no mosquito is mosquito but thought of my son can really bother me you know if my son does not behave in a manner that i expect him to behave because closer the people are more expectations we have of them and they were more capacity they are hurting me it's most amazing that the most hurt comes from the people who are most closely related to me closer a person is of course uh, more uh, satisfaction of relationship i have at the same time closer the person is more a greater possibility of being hurt because the expectations also are great and expectation means that i expect them to change to become suitable to me and sometimes people don't know what it is and expect from them also children sometimes do not know what the parents expect from them and therefore sometimes parents can get upset because children do not behave as but children doesn't do not know and sometimes when a person knows what it is they expect that they may not be capable of actually fulfilling my expectations also and thirdly sometimes people know what i expect they don't care to fulfill my expectation also there are many things because if i if they fulfill my expectation i should fulfill their expectation you know and then it's a mutual give and take and therefore that my requirement that i feel comfortable only when somebody fulfills my expectation i think i have to grow out of that need of making somebody else feeling me comfortable i have to learn and grow that i should discover comfort from myself or i should learn how to become comfortable rather than demanding that other people or the world should make me comfortable so whenever i make demands upon others basically it is demand that you make me comfortable you behave properly you do what i want you to do you get the job that i think you should get you must make the salary that i think you should make you go to the school that i think you should go to you must talk in a language that i think you should you should dress in a manner which i think and so forth and so on and then i feel comfortable then i feel accepted and then i feel comfortable and so i feel comfortable when i feel accepted and when i i feel accepted when they fulfill my expectations and this is how my comfort with my own self depends upon other people fulfilling my expectations i don't say that this is totally unfair but then this is what it is and as i said this creates a ground for being hurt so kshama or forgiveness or accommodation means accommodating also the limitations and even defects 
of other people. <coughs> Accepting that it is a fact of life, there is nothing they can do about it, this is how they are created. Well, if I feel that it is, ne- it is important that the person should change, I should help them to change, if I can. Rather than demanding that somebody should change, maybe I should help, reach out, help them to change. In which case, they will feel accepted and they will be willing to change also. And so, Kshama is not merely giving up the expectations, but also reaching out to help somebody. This is what Kshama is, and as I said, this is what is required in every relationship. Then the relationship can be healthy. Yesterday we told you a story about in Mahabharata of what happens when Kshama is not there. There are many stories of Kshama also, understand, you know. And so, uh, the Puranas tell us a story that once upon a time the sages were performing a big yaga along the banks of the river Saraswati. And a debate arose among all these rishis or sages as to who is the noblest god <coughs> among the three. There are three most prominent gods, Brahma the creator, Vishnu the preserver and Shiva the destroyer. Of them, who is the noblest? Some people say, some rishis say that no, Brahma is the noblest, <coughs> he is the creator. Some others say that Vishnu is the noblest, he is the preserver. Others say that no, Shiva is the noblest. And so, they could not arrive at a consensus. So then, they decided to find out. So they appointed one sage whose name was Bhrugu. Sage Bhrugu was appointed unanimously to determine who is the noblest among the three. <coughs> sage Bhrugu took up this task, first went to Brahma. By the way, Brahma is the father of Bhrugu. Bhrugu is a Manasputra, the son of Brahma. Anyway, goes to his father's uh, court, doesn't salute him, goes and takes a seat. And Brahma father got upset. Look at this, my son doesn't show respect, got upset and was going to curse him. Then Goddess Saraswati, Brahma's consort came in the way and says, Oh, he's your son, don't worry, don't get upset, you know, be calm. And anyway, so Brahma became calm, but then Bhrugu could discover what Brahma is. Okay, he left. Went to Kailasa, where Lord Shiva is. By some relationship, Lord Shiva is brother of Bhrugu, you know. <laughs> Both are sons of Brahma. <clears throat> and so when Lord Shiva saw Bhrugu approaching him, Oh, my brother is coming, you know. And he got up with all the affection and wanted to go and hug him. Don't touch me, I am a Brahmin. You are all the snakes and the, you know, the ashes on your body. You are impure, don't touch me. When Bhrugu said this to Shiva, he was very upset, he was going to hit him with his trident. Fortunately, Goddess Parvati came in, you know, and said, he prevented Shiva from doing that. Bhrugu left that also. And came to where Lord Vishnu is. At the milky ocean. As you know, Lord Vishnu was reclining on his serpent bed and was in yoga nidra, in his slumber they call it. So when he is in slumber, in the Nidra, Yoga Nidra, then naturally doesn't know what's happening around. And therefore he did not know that Bhrugu came. See, when a sage of this esteem comes, then you should really respect, you should, you should welcome him. But since Lord Vishnu did not know, because he was in his Yoga Nidra, he was in his slumber, and therefore 
did not did not know that Bhrugu had come in and so Bhrugu came and stood in front of Lord Vishnu. Look at this, he's sleeping, you're sleeping? You're supposed to, to maintain, preserve the whole universe and what are you doing sleeping? And he kicked him in his chest. All of a sudden Lord Vishnu woke up and said, hey, this is Sage Bhrugu here and he immediately got up and says, I am very sorry. He held the foot of the sage Bhrugu and said, I am so sorry that I was not awake, you know, I was not here to welcome you. And my chest is very hard, your feet is so delicate, I am sure that your foot is hurt, you know, because of striking against my chest. And then we started caressing the foot of Bhrugu. And in respect of Bhrugu, as a repentance that he failed to show proper respect to him when Bhrugu came, he says, as a repentance, I will always retain the mark. So when the, when the Bhrugu kicked on the chest, there was a mark. And he said, so I'm going to retain this mark always as a mark of repentance. And so I will always retain you on my chest. So that's called Bhrugu Lata or Sri Lanchana. So this is, this is a Lanchana or a scar that Lord Narayana always carries on his chest. So that's one of the characteristics. When they describe Lord Vishnu or any one of his incarnations, this scar also will be described as one of the ornaments that he wears on his chest. Bhrugu was convinced who was the noblest. He came and reported all the sages that Lord Vishnu is the noblest. This is the quality of what we call Kshama. To be able to forgive, to be able to accommodate, to be able to love in spite of being treated in this way. I mean, this requires a great large-heartedness. But this is an example. These are all examples. The idea is that this tells how far, how far we can grow. That's all. Swamiji is all in Puranas. But then there are many sages also, in fact, saints who have demonstrated this quality. In Maharashtra, there was a great saint. Many saints are there. Maharashtra is well known as a land of saints. One great saint was Ekanath. He was a very pious person and very highly respected or revered. There are always some people who just cannot stand this thing, you know. When some pious people are respected or revered, then there are some fellow wicked people who just cannot stand that. And they think that this is all, this is all dhamma, it's all pretension, you know. This fellow is all a fraud. So what this man did, it was a custom of this saint Ekanatha. Every morning to go to the river Godavari, take a dip, you know, in the holy river and return to his home before he performed his puja or the morning chores. So this man took position in a balcony of one of the houses on the way of this saint. And when the saint was returning after taking bath in the river, this man had filled his mouth with water and he poured that water on the saint. Now this is impure, you know. When you, the water in your mouth is impure and so when this fellow spent that water on Saint Ekanath, naturally he got impure. So he went back to the river to bath again. He came back, again this fellow did the same thing. Very silently, Ekanath went back, again took the bath. The story goes that this happened 108 times. And many times it happens. Ultimately, this man, this wicked person, who was deliberately doing this, 
he just came down and fell at the feet of the saint and says, Please pardon me, you know, I just did not know who you were. Today I discovered how great you are. The saint says, No, no, in fact, you have done a great favor to me today, this morning. On my own, I would have gone to the river only once, that's all. And today, because of you, I had the privilege of taking the bath 108 times. And the belief is that when you take bath in rivers like this, when you take a dip in a rivers like this, you get purified. And so today it is because of you that I, I could take 108 dips in this river and therefore, thank you very much. Can you believe this? So these are all stories, you know. But then even in very recently, about Gandhi, Mahatma Gandhi also. See how great people treat others. This Mahatma Gandhi, you always would travel in the third class or you know, the lowest class in the train. That was a big problem for the British. He would not, you know, because he would not accept any kind of privileges. But therefore, they had to make elaborate arrangement for his security. He did not want it, but anyway, so he would travel within the third class. That day there was third class, you know, that is a common class where all kinds of people travel, all villagers and everybody, you know. So when once Gandhiji was traveling and then Somebody was sitting, one of the passengers, and he had, I think, some cough or whatever it is, and so, uh, some mucus, he just spat on the floor of the train. It's not very uncommon for people to spit. He did that right there. What Mahatma Gandhi did was, he was reading a newspaper, he tore off a piece of the newspaper, cleared that thing, that man got upset, he did it again. Again he cleaned up, he did it third time, several times he did. Patiently, without retaliating or retorting, Gandhiji every time took a piece of newspaper, cleaned it. That man did not know who this man was. When the next station came, hundreds of people came on the railway station platform with all kinds of garland and they shouted and received Gandhiji and then this man came to know who he was and how he had treated him. He fell at his feet. So, I'm very sorry, I, I just did not know what I was doing. Just don't worry. If you're really sorry, then take a vow that you would not do this again. Not only that, but if someone does it, then you will clean the floor. <laughs> That's the best repenting. repenting. So, these are the examples of Kshama. Kshama means this forgiveness. It requires a tremendous large-heartedness to be able to do that. But, they say this, Swamiji would say that these two values, ahimsa and chama, non-violence and forgiveness, <coughs> accommodation, large-heartedness, these two values are enough and they should go together. Because the question is often asked, Swami, I do not hurt anybody, but people hurt me, what should I do? This is when kshama comes into play. And of course, my, my vow or my discipline or my value is not to hurt anybody. That is the non-violence. But then it is true that very often I become subject to being hurt by others. What should I do? As I said, by kshama, by forgiveness. When we are describing all of this, Prusvi, this earth is said to be the embodiment of kshama. She is called kshama, Prusvi. One of the names is, the main kshama. That's one of the names of Prithvi, Earth. Because Earth always forgives. She always supports everybody, bears everybody's burden, 
gives them food, gives them nourishment, everything. Even though people may insult and abuse the earth, and still she never retaliates. She always gives them, you know, that nourishment, always supports them, always shows her love and affection, like mother. So, all these examples of Shama are there, and it is something for us to learn. This is, these are both these values are very big. Ahimsa and Shama, non-violence and forgiveness are not ordinary things. They are not easy to practice. And it's what they call, it's all order to practice, but then to the extent that we can practice these values, to that extent we can grow. There is no question about it. One can become a saint, even if you do not know scriptures and you are not a scholar and you do nothing else. But if these two values are there, then a person becomes a saint. And that is what one is to become in, in order to gain the knowledge, gain the guidance and knowledge. And again I should repeat that when we talk of these values, they are very idealistic things. And so when we practice these values, understand that practicing a value calls for number one, an interpretation of what that value means in a given situation. Even though the values are all universal, but then that practice is individual. The values are objective or universal, but the practice is subjective. Subjective meaning that one has to, one has to determine what a given conduct would be. What would be the conduct in a given situation when it would be ahimsa or kshama? What is non-violence? What is forgiveness? That is what one has to determine in a given situation. And that interpretation lies with an individual. There we can make mistakes. It's possible that what I thought was kshama or ahimsa was something else. But anyway, it is value in the spirit which is important. We can keep on learning. Also, when we practice these values, it is for sure that we have to suffer. There is always a pain involved in practicing these values. Because I have to give up something which is dear to me, something that I am attached to, in order to follow these values. When I say it, I must keep under check my impulse of anger or retaliation to follow non-violence. And also I must, must exhibit or display large-heartedness to accommodate somebody. And naturally this requires keeping under check my tendencies and demands that I must grow. E practicing value demands that I must grow. And growth means that I must give up some of my small-mindedness. I must give up some of my small-heartedness. That I must give up. That is what is meant by growth. And practicing these values demands that I should grow. In fact, every relationship demands that I should grow. Every relationship. Because relationship itself is a demanding thing. And to the extent that I want to make the relationship a relationship of harmony, to that extent I have to grow. Which is wonderful. And so because life should become a process of growth, which is the whole idea of these values, which is what Lord Krishna says. That knowledge also presupposes a certain growth, which is commonly called emotional maturity or purification of mind. <coughs> and as we said, we have to look at practicing these values requires a strong person, an inner strength. We said yesterday, Kshama Virasya Bhushanam. Kshama or forgiveness is Bhushanam, is an ornament of the brave and not of the weak. And therefore, it calls for a lot of being brave, you know, bravery is required. And that we cultivate in course of time. And so, practice these values with the limitations that you have. I mean, everybody has a limitation of how much I can suffer, how much pain I can bear, 
how much I can drop. And so, there is a limitation. Within those boundaries, we practice the values. And we hope, or we commit ourselves to stretch those boundaries as much as we can, so that our practicing value becomes, you know, uh, easier and easier, <coughs> less and less painful. So that is kshantihi. Kshantihi means kshama, forgiveness, or accommodation, uh, endurance, or a glad acceptance. Endurance, etc. also have some negative connotation that I'm enduring, I'm suffering, I'm putting up with it. Which means that outwardly I don't make a show, but inwardly there is some reaction. In fact, shama calls for a total freedom from reaction when there is a, an acceptance, <coughs> a glad acceptance. Then we have the next value called arjavam. So arjavam. Rujubhava arjavam. Ruju means straight. Arjava means straightness. Rectitude, a straightness. Rujubhava. Akautalyam. Yasarudayam vyavaharanam. Akautalyam. A freedom from crookedness or wickedness or fraud or deception. Meaning a frame of mind which is free from any crookedness or wickedness or fraud or deception. That is called Arjavam. So, rujuta means straightness. What makes my mind non-straight? When there is crookedness. So, crookedness is opposed to straightness. So, we know what crookedness is. So, this crookedness or deception or fraud. So, any of these things are in fact opposite of rujutvam, opposite of straightness. <coughs> they say, yasa rudayam vyavaharanam. My vyavahara, my conduct is in keeping with what is in my mind. That something else is in my mind and something else is in my conduct. This is the opposite of rujutvam. Rujutvam, straightness or rectitude or sincerity or honesty is that my conduct reveals what is there in my mind. <coughs> you can call it truthfulness also, call it honesty, which is a very important value. <coughs> Parapratarana rahityam. That if it, what is important here is my intention. That I have the I have the intention of not cheating anybody, not misguiding anybody, not deceiving anybody. Sometimes people speak truth, but the truth is spoken in such a clever manner. The other person does not understand it, you know. And in fact he is misguided. So sometimes we say things in such clever way as to misguide other people. And when he would come back and say, Swami, you told me this wrongly. I said, no, I told you this. You understood it differently. But that I had a certain intention anyway so that he doesn't understand. So I am not blamed for telling a lie. At the same time, the effect of telling a lie is, is there. <coughs> Which means that sometimes we appear to be straight. But our intentions are not always straight. And therefore, having very straight or sincere intention. This is called rujutvam. It is called honesty. So, an alignment between the thought, the word and the deed. This alignment is called rujuta. And this Lord Krishna is of course is a great value because only when there is an alignment between my thought and my deed, then alone there is going to be harmony within myself. 
when that alignment is not there, there is going to be disharmony, there is going to be conflict. As Swami would say, the karta and the knyata. Knyata is a knower and karta is a doer. So within my mind I know what the truth is and what I do is something different from what I know then, that is split within my own personality. That the knower in me knows things in one way and the doer in me does it differently. The standard example of a telephone comes in the home and the, the child picks up the phone and says to dad, dad, there is a call for you. Tell him that I am not here, you know. So, <laughs> this is something like that. So, uh, say that I am not here, whereas I am really here. This is a simple thing. In our day-to-day life also, these little things happen when we find it rather difficult to be honest. Swami, you can't be honest all the time. You cannot reveal everything that you have. But anyway, that's a value. Can you imagine that you had the freedom to reveal everything that's there in your mind? And right now it is not there. But can you imagine that? That can only happen when I have no shame about what I have. I am. That just because I have certain limitations within me, that I am not ashamed of them, ashamed of revealing them if necessary. And therefore I do not see any need to put a foot on a facade. I do not see any need to deceive anybody and make myself appear as different from what I am. That kind of boldness or that kind of strength and that kind of freedom from shame if I have, then I can be honest. But honesty also requires a great price. Following every value always calls for a price. Otherwise everybody would follow the value. If following the values was easy, if it did not not extract any price from me, then who will not follow the value? Understand that everybody wants to follow all these values. Nobody has to teach them. We are discussing all these at the great land, that's fine. But basically, most of these values are in, in, you know, I mean, basically, instinctively also known to us. The reason why we are discussing is so that we get all to understand the various dimensions of that and discover the value of values. But everybody would want to be honest. Everybody, we want to be truthful. Nobody wants to be dishonest and nobody wants to be untruthful. But Swamiji, then why do you find so much dishonesty in the world? For the simple reason that people don't know how to remain honest, how to, how to uh, own up that honesty. As I said, a person is helpless and therefore he does not come out clean because there is a lot of fear within myself, a lot of insecurity within myself and that's what makes me a person who is not straightforward. Therefore, I see a need to hide my real intention behind, you know, in my mind and not reveal them. And in society like India, this is, uh, this dishonesty is fairly common. I mean, because there everybody knows everybody else. There is no such thing as privacy in India. Very little. Now it's coming up slowly in the big cities, now people have their own, now slowly they are also becoming nuclear families and uh, or in an extended family also, some people have the luxury of having their own rooms. But we didn't have that. And still most people don't have it. It's a two-room house in which eight people are living. You know, where nobody has a, you know, nobody has a private room, nobody has privacy. And everybody knows what's happening to everybody else. And neighbors also what they are, everybody is very, you know, and so people can walk into somebody's house at any time. There is no appointment required. They can come into your house and just chat with you and take your newspapers and start reading and so forth and whatever. <laughs> or can ask you, who was, who came to you yesterday? What happened? You know, all of these they can easily ask you. 
and they're available to you also for you asking these questions also. Now it's not always convenient for you to necessarily tell everything to everybody. At the same time you do not want to say that I don't want to tell you. That also they don't say. No, I will not tell you. That they don't say. And so they say what is convenient. They do not say what is true because it may be embarrassing. It may be something that I am not willing to expose. I don't want to be exposed. And so to be honest or straightforward may be very embarrassing. Or it may involve, as I said, paying some price which I am not willing to. And therefore, it is not very uncommon that what I say is different from what I think. Very common. Let's say, among people growing up in eastern countries, in countries like India, it is not uncommon. Because, number one also, another thing is then that society is that it is very important to me what other people think of me. And therefore, it is important what will they say. In Western, in I think United States and these people don't care what the other fellow will say. Let them say what they want to say. Oh, you're not getting, you're not married, you're living together? Yes. That's all right. <laughs> you're not married, still have a child? Yes. Okay. Of course, I think 25 years ago people may have hesitated. Slowly it is going away, you know. But the idea is that here people have a certain amount of freedom, independence, social independence, economic independence, and that being the case, you don't care that much about what somebody else thinks of you. Unless you go, go for a public office, then it's a different matter. <laughs> when he was behaving like this, he never thought he would go to public office, you know. <laughs> when he goes to public office, then he finds out what he has done, you know, and then how to, how to now hide everything. And use all your skills in, 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 in confusing people, in misguiding them, in hiding everything. But otherwise, generally speaking, there is more freedom. And people also don't bother about others that much because they are too busy with themselves and therefore they don't have much time and, you know, care or concern about what somebody else is. That being the case, it is more convenient to be honest in a society like this. Where it is not very important, what do you think of me? And people also don't think much of them, because everybody is like that anyway. Everybody knows, you know, they just say, what is it? Everybody has, uh, what is the expression there? Uh, they have their own, uh, in the closet, what is it? Skeletons. Yeah, skeletons in their own closet. That everybody is, not only, everywhere in the world has a skeletons in their closet. And so all then, let him have his skeletons, let me have my skeleton, let him leave me alone, and he leaves me alone. It's a mutual, uh, you know, convenient thing. But in a place like India, people do not leave others alone. And they are not left alone also. That being the case, it is necessary to keep my uh, closets and not show those skeletons. So those skeletons are there in the mind and I do not show them. Because what people think is very important. In that society, it is very important that you get support from the rest of the community. And if you don't get that support, then you are left alone, isolated, all these things happen. You don't want to be isolated, you don't want to be ostracized by other people and therefore you need that acceptance, you need that approval. And that approval can be there only when they think well of you. And they think well of you only when you make a show of, of being well, of, of a good person. And therefore, whatever else that you have, you all hide in your mind. And therefore, 
this lack of honesty is much more likely to be there. Dishonesty does not only mean that I cheat somebody or that, you know, I do not declare my true income in my, in, in, you know, in the uh, income tax return or whatever it is. But then, honesty is involved at every level. Honesty is involved in communication. Honesty is involved in how I reveal my intentions. And thus, if we really look at our own behavior and our own thought pattern, then we will find out the dimensions of dishonesty that are involved in ourselves. And all of these are obstacles. All of these are obstacles to knowledge. All of these are obstacles to happiness. As I said, all of these because there is going to be conflict. I am aware of what it is in my mind and I am aware of what it is that I am saying or how I am revealing myself and therefore the knower-doer split is bound to be there. And there is going to be a conflict. There is going to be a, you know, a sense of guilt also. In fact, I never feel good about myself whenever I find myself not honest. I'm not, I don't feel good about myself. I don't feel good about myself whenever I am not able to follow this value. Because I have an expectation from my own self that I should follow these values. And whenever I am not able to do that, I am not happy with myself. And that is why, again, already I am not comfortable with myself. I am not, because of ignorance, I take myself a limited being and already I am not happy with myself. On the top of that, this kind of compromise or violation of values creates more and more wretchedness about myself and therefore that sense of being unhappy or dissatisfied with myself keeps on growing. And therefore it is said that following these values is important even in our day-to-day life. Even just to be, to enjoy the life that we have, even if you don't talk of knowledge and moksha, even in our day-to-day life also this is important. And so Lord Krishna says, Arjavam Rujuta Paraprasarana Rahityam not cheating anybody, not misguiding anybody, not deceiving anybody. <coughs> so, yasarudayam vyavaharanam, my vyavahara, that is what I say, reveals what it is that I think. And what I do is a reflection of what it is that I say. An alignment between the thought, the word and the deed. Very difficult. In fact, when we, when we look at our mind, our intention, then we will see what all work needs to be done. But this is also a very important value. Honesty or straightforwardness or rectitude also is a very important value. <coughs> that is Arjavam. Because that is how Atma is. Atma doesn't change with reference to time, place or conditions. And if I keep on changing that I at one time I am like this, other time I am like that, naturally that is not in alignment with the self. That is not in harmony with the self. And as I said, when we violate the values, we are all violating our own self. <coughs> so this first line tells us, these values, amanitvam, adambhitvam, ahimsa, shanti, arjivam, these five values are told to us, which are the values we practice in our day-to-day life, in our interaction with the world. Most of these values require us to give up something, give up some of the uh, uh, defects or some of the limitations or shortcomings I should say, some of the shortcomings that are there in my mind, practicing these values requires me to give up these shortcomings. Some other values require me to acquire some virtues. So next value in the second line of this verse, seventh verse is Acharya Upasanam, Acharya Upasanam, <coughs> reverence for the teacher, the translation is Upasana actually means service, service to the teacher. 
Here the translation is reverence to the teacher. We can say service to the teacher. Upasana also means meditation, really. Upasana also means meditation. That means meditation upon the teacher, service to the teacher, reverence to the teacher. Acharya <coughs> Upasana. This also the, with reference to knowledge. Now this value is not necessarily useful in our day-to-day life, in ordinary life. This value is a specific reference to the pursuit of knowledge. So since Lord Krishna is prescribing these values in the context of knowledge, and therefore some of these values will find are relevant particularly in pursuit of knowledge. The values that we talk so far are relevant in any case, for everybody. But some of the values are relevant only in the context of the pursuit of knowledge. Acharya Upasanam, service to the teacher, is one of those values which is relevant in the context of pursuing knowledge. Who is Acharya? Moksha Sadhana Upadeshta Acharya Hito Upadeshta Acharya So the uh, definition of a teacher is Hito Upadeshta <coughs> One who gives me instruction with reference to what is Hitam, what is beneficial in my life. <coughs> and of course what is most beneficial is Moksha and therefore Moksha Sadhana Upadeshta Acharya Acharya is a teacher who is Upadeshta who the instructor with reference to moksha sadhana, the means of moksha. What is means of moksha? Knowledge is the means of liberation. Why do we say knowledge is means of liberation? Because the so-called bondage is purely a product of ignorance. This has been already discussed a number of times as to how a sense of limitation that I feel, in fact, is only a notion about myself and not the truth of myself. Right now, it is something that is that appears to be very real. That I am a limited person, I am bound, I am limited. This sense of limitation seems to be very real. But in fact, it is only a product of ignorance. Not knowing the fact that I am always liberated. <coughs> Not knowing that fact, then I am entertaining presently and suffering from, as a matter of fact, a sense of limitation. And that can only go by knowledge. So this is what a teacher does. The teacher... What Vedantic teacher teaches us is this very simple thing that you are not what you take yourself to be. You are not a samsari. You are not a limited being. You are not bound. In fact, you are always liberated. Tattvamasi, that the what? You are always liberated. You are all what you actually want to be. You are always free. You are always liberated. You are always limitless. This is what is being taught. Of course, the teachers do not simply stop by making these kind of statements, but then these statements are unfolded, they are expounded. For years and years together, it's amazing that this one message is given to us for years together. Swami used to tell us, so when we started studying with Swami, then in first one or two days, Swami said, look, this is what I am telling you today, that you are Brahman. And at the end of the course also, that's all I have to tell you, nothing new. Then why so many, why, why years and years of study? Just so that things become clear, that's all. Said so knowledge is there and I am Brahman. Some kind of knowledge comes even right away. Right away when the story of the tenth man is told, that was the first time I heard the story. It's amazing, you know. 
I, I heard the story means in this context. I, so the first time that I heard the story of 10, 20 years, I'm so fond of this story because that was, I think, one of the most impacting things as far as I was concerned. When I heard the story in the context of Vedanta, on the third day, the first day it was said that man, all, man has desire. So this was the subject matter of the first day. That there is a desire and that shows that man is searching for something. Two kinds of desires are there. What we call natural desires and cultivated desires. This went on. Second day the lecture was what man is doing for fulfilling the desires. And how it appears as though desire can never be fulfilled. Very frustrating. I said, what is this? This is very frustrating. Then the third day the story was told of the tenth man. The desire for searching for the tenth man can only be satisfied by discovering that the one who is searching for is his own self. That came to me as a tremendous revelation. Wow, he is what he is searching for. That means you are what you are searching for. You are the tenth man. You are ever free. This is so comforting. But the most comforting things to hear was that I was already free. That there is nothing to be done. I guess that suited me very well. To the people who are lazy, I think this idea suits very well, you know. <laughs> that you need not do anything. That's all. Except that I kept on discovering that not to do something, you have to do a lot, you know. A lot is to be done in order not to do something. Because doing something or doing the wrong thing has become a habit of the mind and therefore to make the mind become free, to bring about a cessation of doing what is not right, itself is, requires a lot of doing. <clears throat> but anyway, this was a message given right in the beginning. And we were told that this is a message that will be given at the end also. Except that, as we saw, the knowledge came. The knowledge has to gain the clarity. So give the example of a Polaroid picture that you take a picture with a Polaroid camera and pull out the frame from the camera and beginning you just don't see anything and in a while you start seeing the outline. You took the picture of Swamiji sitting on the dais, took a picture, that's what is seen the outline. And slowly and slowly the picture becomes clearer and clearer and all the, the features start becoming clearer. The, the knowledge remains the same. Swami sitting on the dais, Swami sitting on the dais, that was the knowledge, even when you saw the outline, and that's the knowledge that remains at the end also. But in between, that knowledge just gets clarified further and further and further, until there is no vagueness at all, no doubt at all, and that is what is called knowledge, is free from any vagueness, any doubt, any habitual error. And that's the reason why this is being done over a number of years. In fact, it is a lifetime pursuit. And this is what the teacher does, basically, is in fact teaches me or unfolds before me the nature of my own self. As we say the other day, he in fact unfolds his own self or he unfolds the self of the student. <coughs> so, Moksha Sadhana Upadeshta Acharya. Acharya is the teacher who is Upadeshta, the instructor or teacher of knowledge which is the means of Moksha. <coughs> Upasanam, Sevanam, serving the teacher. Shushrushadi prayogena. By Shushrusha, by offering, by, by offering him a service. And so, worshipping the teacher by offering him the service. So, worshipping the teacher is a very sensitive thing, you know, particularly in the, in, 
in India this is all right, there is no problem at all. So people who were, who were born and raised in India have not much difficulty with the idea. But perhaps the person who is born and brought up in the West may have difficulty in serving somebody. When can I serve somebody? When can I revere somebody? When can I serve somebody? When can I meditate upon somebody? When can I win upasana worshipping the teacher? Worshipping a person? This is all the, this is, looks like a personality cult. So, if this kind of a thing is told in public, it may look like, sound like personality cult, but that is not so. It is not that really we are worshipping the teacher, but we are worshipping what the teacher stands for, and that is the knowledge. So, teacher in fact reveals before us what we call the scriptures. And that's the reason why we are worshipping the scriptures. The scriptures also worship because of what it is that they reveal, and that is the truth. Therefore, really it is worshipping the truth. That should be worship of truth. Worship of what it is that I am seeking in my life, basically. That I should become a devotee of the goal that I am seeking in life. That is called the devotion or commitment or worship. Is it not so that if I want to achieve anything that I must really become a devotee of that? If you want to become a, a swimmer, then you must, you know, become a devotee of that swimming. Simply commit yourself to that. You want to become a singer, you want to become a dancer, you want to become whatever it is that you want to become, it is a, it calls for a total commitment. At, at putting my whole soul in that. By my mind, by my words, by my actions, my whole being is in fact uh, poured into that. So that kind of a commitment or devotion is called for to make any worthwhile achievement in life. So there is a cause. If there is a cause in my life, then what is required in order to achieve that cause is a total devotion to that cause, worship to that cause. And therefore here, in fact, worshipping the teacher symbolizes or my commitment, in fact, it stands for my value or commitment to worshipping the truth, which is what I want in my life. Sometimes that truth <coughs> is called God. And so Shvetashvata Rupanita says, Yasya deve parabhaktihi yasa deve tasaguru Tasyete kathita hyasaha prakashante mahatmanana. Yasya deve parabhaktihi, one who has this total devotion for Devata means God. Yasa deve tasaguru, and the kind of devotion that he has for the for Lord is the devotion that he has for the teacher. So when one has this devotion in one's mind, tasyete kathita hyasaha prakashante mahatmanana. This Upanishad called Shvetashvata Upanishad concludes the teaching with this verse. The sage Shvetashvatara concludes his discourses by this verse. Says to his disciple, that look, whatever it is that I have taught you so far, the meaning of those statements will actually flash in your mind. That is that you will see the meaning of these statements of the Upanishad, provided you possess that state of mind, a frame of mind, that disposition of mind. What kind of disposition? Where? There is this highest devotion for the teacher, the highest devotion for God and equally the highest devotion for the teacher. One who has that, in that mind, these words will reveal their meanings. So words are to reveal their meanings. We said the other day that words can become pramanam, meaning that they can become the source of knowledge or means of knowledge, provided we understand the meaning of the words. And the meaning of the words must be understood in the same sense in which they are used. Therefore, we must know the tatparya, the purport of what is being said. 
and that happens when one possesses this kind of state of mind this is what the upanishad says and therefore in context of that lord krishna says acharya upasanam worshiping the teacher or reverence to the teacher or serving the teacher <coughs> and that is where this value comes in the context of <coughs> knowledge because as i said my primary commitment is to my own self everybody in fact loves themselves but that commitment becomes fulfilled when i know myself therefore knowledge also becomes valuable to me and there were the scriptures which reveal the knowledge also become valuable to me but in as much as i do not have an ex- direct access to scriptures the teacher becomes a link between scriptures and myself therefore the teacher also becomes important so understand the primary value is to myself and therefore that value then ultimately becomes a value for the knowledge therefore it becomes a value for the scriptures therefore it becomes value for the teacher and that is where the context of worshiping the teacher we will continue with this idea in our next class om purnamada purnamidam purnat purnamudachyate purnasya purnamadaya purnameva avashishyate om shante 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 शंकरं शंकराचार्यं केशवं वादरायणं सूत्रभाष्यकृतवन्तौ पुनः पुनः ईश्वरो गुरुरात्मेदि मूर्तिभेदविभागिने व्योमवद्व्याप्तदेहाय दक्षिणामूर्तये नमः ओम शान्ते शान्ते